0: is the bloody disgusting podcast network what an excellent day for an exorcism you'd like that intensely but wouldn't that drive you out of reagan it would bring us together you and reagan You and us. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio.
1: I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor. And we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 198.
2: Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. In 2013's Mama, Jessica Chastain Was the first and only choice for the part of Annabelle
1: There's a new documentary available exclusively on Discovery Plus Called Shock Docs, The Exorcism of Roland Doe It is a story of the real exorcism case That inspired the William Peter Blatty novel And later the iconic William Friedkin film, The Exorcist This time around, you are hanging out with prolific author And paranormal historian, Troy Taylor Who is featured in the doc He is an expert on the unparalleled and haunting events that originally took place in 1949. He wrote a book about it called The Devil Came to St. Louis, as well as close to 130 books on the supernatural and unexplained. Learn about the shocking things that happened to Roland, and in other similar cases that are part of a rising need for the Vatican to recruit more exorcists. Some of these cases making medical history. Hear about the haunted spot that might change your life forever, should you dare take home a souvenir a terrifying house in Pittsburgh that tormented a family for more than two years, and much, much more. Listener discretion is advised.
2: If you are interested in this conversation, go back and check out episode 196 with documentarian Joe Berlinger on the Cecil Hotel and the Elisa Lamb case. Episode 72 with the owners of the real-life Conjuring House In episode 10 with the practicing exorcist R.H. Stavis.
3: Episode 198 starts
4: now. This is Troy Taylor, and you are listening to another mysterious episode of The Boo Crew.
0: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy.
1: William Friedkin's film, The Exorcist, was released in 1973, arguably the most terrifying movie ever made. It seeped its way into pop culture, ushered in an entirely new way of storytelling. It was the first horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, was nominated for 10 Oscars that year, winning two of them, was the highest grossing R-rated film until It came out in 2017. Audiences flocked to the theater and report fainting and vomiting if they could even stand to continue watching the events transpire on screen at all, detailing the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and an exorcism performed by two Roman Catholic priests. It was based on a novel written in 1971 by William Peter Blatty, which was inspired by a true story, more horrifying than the film itself. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, is an acclaimed author and supernatural historian who has written over 130 books on the paranormal, true crime, and the unexplained. He's the founder of the American Hauntings Ghost Tour Company that has been taking guests behind the walls of the most haunted locations in the nation since 1993. He launched the country's original paranormal conference, Haunted America, Started Whitechapel Press publishing best-selling books about the supernatural and as a renowned public speaker sharing his expertise on ghosts and hauntings in print and news media. Hundreds of radio and TV shows, including those for TLC, PBS, A&E, and programs like Scariest Places on Earth, America's Ghost Hunters, and many more. The Exorcism of Roland Doe. It's a new documentary streaming exclusively on Discovery Plus. Our guest is an expert on the subject, wrote a book on it entitled The Devil Came to St. Louis, appeared in the film, and even has the chance to interview an Alexian monk involved in the months long exorcism and others associated with the actual events. We are honored to welcome Troy Taylor.
0: Yeah!
4: Oh. Yeah! That, that sounded more impressive than I just heard. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, who is this guy? Wow, he sounds great. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't know who wrote that, but I'm going to thank them.
1: (laughs) Well, Troy, man, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And congratulations on the doc. So just starting off, talk to us about your gateway into studying the world of the paranormal and the unexplained.
4: You know, it was just honestly something I'd been interested in my whole life. I had always been interested in ghosts and hauntings and unsolved mysteries and, and anything like that. And why this one story I... I really couldn't begin to tell you Um, for whatever reason, it just caught my interest. I was living in the St. Louis area in the mid nineties and I heard this story or, you know, I'd seen the exorcist. I mean, I I saw the exorcist when I was like 12. Um, So, I mean, I had a, had a history with the movie, but not with the real story. I, I just, I heard it and I thought this can't be true. You know, it's, it's, you know, based on a true story. Yeah, we've all heard that before, you know? And I thought, you know, somebody is just you know they heard exorcism and they put it together. It can't be real. So I started digging into this story and the more I dug and the more people I talked to and back in the mid nineties you could actually still talk to people who were alive who were associated or involved in the actual exorcism. It wasn't that tough to find people around the area. So the more people I talked to, the more stories I collected. I started to think, you know, there there is I could see where there's a basis here, but I couldn't still make the connection. I I wouldn't make the connection with Blatty uh, until probably a year or so later, and when I found out how he found out about something that was supposed to have been kept this deep dark secret when it was all over, because no one could talk about specifics. I. Started researching and was able to find out that, you know, the boy's name, the family, and all the names of the people involved. But at the time, it was not common knowledge. Most people didn't know where it happened, what took place, anything like that. So, I mean, that was really the beginnings of it starting to become a public thing. Well, it turned out that Blatty had been studying to be a Jesuit priest in a seminary at Georgetown University in 1949 when this exorcism had happened. You know, it had been kept a big secret, but there had been a tiny article that had been written in a D.C. newspaper that said, you know, local boy, because that's where it had actually started was in Cottage City, Maryland, right outside of Washington. And local boy undergoes exorcism, that kind of thing. And gladdy got intrigued by it and talked to one of his advisors and was able to get his hands on what became known as the priest's diary. Um, now, it was like a. Well, it was really meant to be a how-to guide, but it was really a journal of the events that happened during the exorcism, kept by Father Bishop, who was one of the priests involved. And there were only a handful of copies made. They were not distributed. They were not given out to the public, but somehow Blatty managed to get a copy of one of them. And he also spoke to one of the priests involved, Father Bowdern, who became his inspiration for um, uh, Father Marin in the book and the film. And um, Father Bowdern asked him to please keep this boy's identity secret because they were not even allowed to talk about the exorcism and they were not allowed to use this boy's name. So Blatty, you know, sat on this for a while, started working on the idea for the book. And when he finally wrote it, he changed the identity of the boy who we call Roland for the documentary, changed his identity to a girl to make it more, I think, actually, I think to make it more sympathetic and to make it more shocking because having a 12 year old girl do the things that Linda Blair does in this movie. Um, if it had been a 13 year old boy with, you know, bad language, uh, tearing stuff up and, you know, smelling bad, that's every 13. Right. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, one, no one would have noticed. So, uh, you know, it would not be shocking. So you change it into a girl, I think worked in his favor, but he he did take a lot of the stuff from the real story and just move it right into his novel. And then of course the film, you know, dramatizes everything. I mean, no one's head spins around in real life, no one does the spider walk down backwards down the stairs, no one flies out the window, anything like that. But there's still enough of it that you can see the the footprint, the real story left. On not only the, the, you know, the, the book, but really with the movie too, uh, which I think makes it scarier. Once I found out that it, it wasn't like, you know, based on a true story, like the conjuring movies. I mean, it's based on a true story. That's really a true story. Right. Uh, that was, um, eye-opening for me when I got involved in this thing in the first place.
1: You know, it was interesting that some of the iconography that has become associated with exorcisms and poster art for exorcism movies, there's that, okay. that picture of like someone arching their back. And you actually talk about that in your book, that that yeah. goes back way to the beginning of of first documented exorcisms.
4: Right, right. Yeah, it does. Um, and, you know, that was something they were talking about. Well, I mean, you could go back to the Middle Ages when you really started in the Renaissance area, when you start talking about, the Catholic Church and exorcisms which is why by 1949 they were not super excited about the idea because you know it fit into this window um the the you know the the exorcism in St. Louis fit in this weird time window between when exorcisms were generally accepted as something the church did and the window of now when they've become, Really popular. I mean, popular seems like a bad, but it makes it sound like a fad. Right. Let's all go. But it um, it's it's become popular again that the number of priests who are who are experts in exorcism have gone up over the last 30 years from about 15 in this entire country to 75. And they're always busy. Always busy. They've always got something going on. So 1949 hits this weird window in history, not only for the church, but also for the church in St. Louis. The reason this was all there were two reasons why this was kept secret. One, to protect the boy's identity. When it was over, the archbishop felt like that it was counterproductive to publicize this exorcism, even though the priests wanted to because they knew that it would be good advertising for the church. Like the exorcist turned out to be i mean i guarantee you that after the movie came out there were more people in catholic church pews than it had ever been there before after seeing this movie but the church in st louis at the time had an issue because they were in the midst of desegregating all of the churches and their churches and schools in the city and this 1949 pre-civil rights era this was very controversial and people were very angry, okay, white people in St. Louis were very angry about this. And the last thing the church wanted was publicity to go along with their desegregation efforts that they were engaging in something as out of the middle ages as exorcism was. So this all combined to make this exorcism very secretive, and it also combined to give it a lot more mystery which I think is what's kept interest in it after all these years. You know, seventy some years later, we still don't know a lot of things about this thing. We know more than we did, but still not everything that we, you know, would like to know. I don't think.
3: Yeah, you know, it's been stated by authors and other books that the possession of Roland Doe was about money, perhaps greed. Uh, when his Aunt Tilly passed away, Roland's mother decided to use Roland, Roland as a conduit to communicate with his deceased Aunt Tilly to find out where her savings were hidden. Could this have been possibly the, the avenue, the reason why, as to why Roland was possessed?
4: No, no. Let, let me, let me. I don't know who wrote that. I don't know where that came from, but um, I can tell you for a fact, none of these people had any money. Roland's uncle that they stayed with, I mean, I know who the family is. I know their histories and their backgrounds. I just can't use it right now because mm-hmm. I made an agreement not to use the name. So I'm not using the rest of the family's names, but I will tell you, for a fact that uh, Roland's family, they they were all blue collar people. They worked for an electrical company in St. Louis, and then in Maryland is where his father worked. His uncle was an architect, so he probably had a little more money than the rest of the family. But that was on you know that side of the family. But but Aunt Tilly was married to I'm trying not to use people's names sure, here. Yeah, Roland's yeah. Brother. And they worked at the electrical company together. Roland's grandparents and aunt and uncle all were associated with this blue collar electrical company. There was no money. They didn't have any money. So, it, you know, there was no, no wealth of any kind. Um, you know, the stories, and I, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm probably not supposed to, but the stories about the Ouija board and Aunt Tilly are not true. Uh, there's an Ouija board associated with this case. Um Antilly was not a spiritualist. She had an interest in it like a lot of people did at the time. But Antilly never traveled to Maryland. Um she was uh, almost an invalid. She had hypertension and diabetes and died at the age of 56, about two weeks after the events of the exorcism began in Maryland. At first, they, you know, were saying that it was Antilly who haunted the house. But she wasn't even dead when this all started. She didn't die until two weeks later. Uh, But I can promise you that there was no inheritance or money that was being sought out or anything like that. I'm not I'm not sure where that theory came from. Honestly, Leo, that's the first time I've ever heard it. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but, but I know I know who these families were. And, you know, there was there was not a pot of money to be found anywhere. (laughs) That that I can assure you.
1: (laughs) Well, you mentioned uh, something in the doc and also in The Devil Came to St. Louis. And it is perhaps the most terrifying aspect of all this is that if it could happen randomly to a 14 year old boy, could it happen to someone we know? Could it happen to us?
4: Yeah, because there's no reason why Roland should have been possessed. I mean, there, there just isn't there's not a good explanation for this. Most of the time, and there's the, the priest that we spoke with that is the exorcist that's in the documentary, you know, he's he's talked about how many exorcisms he's been involved with over the years. And you know, there are other priests as well that will tell you that will give you cite reasons why possessions happen. And normally it seems to be inviting something in. And and by that I mean like um getting involved in, in occult rituals. Black magic, summoning demons, inviting them to possess you. Why, again, why would you want to do any of these things? I have no idea. But I, I guess someone would would like to. Uh, but Roland didn't do anything. I mean, he, he had some behavior issues, as they've been described, which means that he had some trouble in school. He was uh, hyperactive. Probably had what we call today, we would probably call ADHD untreated because no one knew to treat it back then. But, you know, he was given a, a full workup at the hospital. They couldn't find anything mentally or physically wrong with him. Uh, so why in the world would this poor kid get possessed? I think this was a plot hole in the real story that Bladdy had to deal with when he wrote his book. He needed a reason why Reagan, this innocent 12 year old girl, would get possessed. Well, he came up with the idea to make it, you know, like a grudge between the demon and Father Marin that went back years. And he was using that to lure Father Marin into it because the real story didn't offer anything like that. There's no good reason, um, and I think that's why people have come up with the idea of, you know, oh Roland must have been using a Ouija board and that's why. But there, in real life, there there's was there was no Ouija board in the story. Uh, but that's become part of the lore, and I know that it was included in the documentary uh, because there's questions about it as well still. But I, I I'm just I'm just saying that that's not what happened. There's really no good explanation, which to me makes it scarier. Mm, yeah, I much scarier is there's no reason for it to happen. Kid didn't ask for it, you know? So, and here it was, and this is what he had to go through. I mean, there have been people who have said that, you know, he, you know, he faked the whole thing. The whole thing was a hoax. And, um, you know, I've tried to follow that kind of reasoning to say that, okay, let's say that it was, but somewhere along the line, when you've, you know, let's say you've, you're managed to fool your family, your friends, your neighbors, your extended relatives, priests, monks, uh, and 48 people who signed affidavits to say they witnessed supernatural activity. Let's say you fooled them all. But don't you think that somewhere in that six weeks of an exorcism going on, even though you fooled everybody, you're now tied to the bed every night for five, six hours at a time with guys screaming at you, splashing you with holy water. After a while, wouldn't you go... Okay, I give up. Yes, <laughs> no, I certainly, certainly. <laughs> certainly. Right, right. And you're following through with this, you know, after all that time, I just can't see it. So then the other excuse is well, it must just be mental illness because, in all honesty, you know, we can look at a lot of cases of possession that date all the way back through history that probably were cases of mental illness, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things that. You know, people didn't understand. There were no real doctors back in those days. They didn't know. And so they just assumed it was demons. So let's say, let's for the sake of argument, let's say this was a mental illness, okay, that Roland had that was causing him to behave this way. And he, you know, these priests, his mother, his grandmother, who were all very religious, his mother and grandmother, very smothering. Let's say that they fed this idea and, and fed his mental illness. OK, so let's say that's what it was. But then we have to explain how after a six week exorcism that he was suddenly miraculously cured without any treatment or any medication because he never, ever had any other problems the rest of his life. None of this ever came back. In fact, after he got home, he went on to have a normal life, I would say above normal life. Um, this is a kid who went to school, finished school, graduated college. Uh, Went on, had a family, uh, got married, had a career in uh, the the space industry. I mean, he has a patent today for the shielding that NASA uses on the rockets to get it through the atmosphere and into space without burning up. Invented that. He was an actual rocket scientist. So how did that happen? If he was, you know, if he was crazy and he had this onset of, you know, maybe... You know, juvenile schizophrenia that only lasted for five months, how'd they cure it? Because you don't cure that, you just treat it. But that, that was cured. So I don't know, however you want to look at it, something really bizarre happened in this case, um, whether it was a demonic possession or a case of spontaneous schizophrenia that was miraculously cured, whatever you want to call it, this was some sort of event that changed the lives of all these people and affected everyone who came into contact with it. Believe me, everyone I interviewed, you know, who was still alive at the time, who was involved in this exorcism, they never forgot it. Walter Halloran, who was a seminary student who Father Bowdern brought in to help out with this case, uh, he was my first interview of anyone who was involved in the exorcism. And the stories that he told that, you know, that we've, recounted through the documentary and in the book about, you know, the things that happened at the house in Belnor, uh, the suburb where the aunt and uncle live, um, the things he saw, the, you know, trying to fight to keep this kid pinned to the bed. Sometimes he was so strong it would take six people to hold him down. This kid was 13 years old, probably weighed 105 pounds soaking wet, skinny, scrawny kid, but somehow six people couldn't hold him to the bed. They talked about the smells that would come that they'd have to open all the windows even though it was still winter time, the banging sounds, the knocking sounds, the things that flew across the room. I mean, these were all things that Father Halloran saw as a young man helping with this exorcism. They are the same things that brother Greg Holowinski saw that I interviewed in the documentary that, well, I interviewed him about six years ago, we had the footage and it was shown in the documentary, but he told me he was a monk. He was an orderly, a nurse rather at Alexian brothers hospital, uh, the mental ward where the exorcism finally ended. And, you know, he saw things happen, but the one thing that startled me the most from his interview was him sitting down with me and, and keep in mind, he's in his late eighties. He has cancer. He's dying and he knows he's dying and he wants to tell the story before he dies. He sits down with me and he tells me that, you know, which straight face without a without a hesitation said to me, I was holding him down on the bed, holding him by his ankles. And the boy levitated 12 inches off the bed. Now, this wasn't, oh, it looked like it or it seemed like it or "I, I thought he did. No, he said, absolutely. This happened. This this happened. There was something going on here. This boy was positively possessed by a demon, you know, and but I mean, you could skew that with his view as a religious person. And, you know, demon is the first thing he's going to think. And that's what everyone believed. So maybe we call demons different things. I mean, we may all be talking about the same thing, that some kind of spirit, some kind of presence, some kind of outside influence. But there was something that happened in this case that cannot be explained away. I don't believe. I mean, and that's, that's what I, and I, I started this as a skeptic and I've tried to be objective, but after 25 years of dealing with this, I've, I've come to believe that, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in demons, like the church believes in demons, but I do believe that there was some sort of presence that inhabited this boy's body and caused these things to happen. What it was, I, I couldn't begin to tell you. I, I don't know, but Um, Something did. Something happened, that's for sure. The Boo Crew will be right
0: back. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. A world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist Baron. Warner Brothers presents William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist The Exorcist directed by William Friedkin The Exorcist rated R Under 17 not admitted without parent
2: If we could randomly, anybody could get possessed, is there anything you can do to protect yourself from not getting possessed?
4: Well, that's that's a question I've been asked several times. Because I, I think I've really freaked people out doing these interviews. And that's usually like the last question. Well, how do I keep myself from <laughs> <Yeah>. getting possessed? <laughs> I um, just
2: want to go straight there.
4: <laughs> no um, right. Well, you know, the um, the priest that we we interviewed in the in the show, he, he you know, he said that he's been an extras for 35 years. And he's done maybe 10 or 12 actual full-blown what he believed were demonic possessions. What he normally deals with is what's called or he calls uh, demonic obsession means that people are, are influenced by some sort of evil. Um, maybe a, you know, I mean, I don't know, you know what the church, it could mean they listen to heavy metal. I, I don't know. It just, you know, there are lots of different feelings that different people have, but apparently that's one of the steps and that's the step right before being possessed. So I guess the the best advice that I can give you that I will not follow myself probably, but the best advice I can give you is to completely stay away from any kind of evil influence uh, that might come into your life, whether that be you know dealing with the occult, using Ouija boards. I, I don't know. You know, it could be anything. Uh, but that's that really seems to be the only the only thing you can do there's no vaccine for it. You know, there's nothing that to prevent it. Uh, but, and, and, you know, when I, when I met that guy, he wanted to, for the camera crew that was there, wanted to demonstrate how it, uh, an exorcism was done using me as the subject. I I passed. You know, yeah. That you know, was, you know, when you get a flu, you get a little bit of the flu, you know, so that you don't get it again. What if that's what this is? You know, it makes me a little upset. You know, and I thought, you know, I'm going to pass. Yeah. Um, so I didn't do it. But I so I don't I don't know what the answer would. I, I honestly I wish I knew what the answer was, but I, that's the best one I can give you is. Um, I don't know. Just be careful about what's out there. But I mean, that's this is my job. So I kind of you know, can't really avoid all those things. Um, and I haven't been possessed yet, so I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting
1: when uh, when you look up Father Lampert, who appears in the, in the documentary, yeah. a real practicing exorc- yes. exorcist, as you mentioned. There comes a, a bunch of stories back in 2016 where they reference that medical history was made in 2008 when doctors from New York Medical College agreed that a woman they called Julia... Levitated six inches off the ground, spoken foreign languages and demonstrated paranormal powers. And this was agreed upon, led by a Yale trained board certified psychiatrist on the faculty of Columbia University. Father Lampert was then part of 400 Catholic leaders who met in Rome to strategize the recruitment and training of more exorcists as cases like this were exploding all over the place over the past like four or five years. And father Lampert, obviously in the dark, what do you make of this?
4: Yeah, I don't know. Um, But yeah, I had read the same thing. And uh, I knew that at, you know, around that same time in Italy, they had gotten like 500,000 requests in a single year for exorcisms. Um, So the popularity, again, that's the wrong word I know, but the interest in it has just exploded over the last, I don't know, decade and a half, probably. The biggest problem that the church seems to have with recruiting priests to become exorcists is that most younger priests are too scared to do it. Because they've heard the stories, and that's that seems to be the biggest drawback they have. But there are so many people out there who are trying to get exorcisms, and and you know, as Father Lambert said, you know, a lot of what he deals with is is obsessions rather than possessions. That people come to believe that they're on the verge, I guess, of being possessed. I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, what I can't say is that I, I blame a lot of it on like shows that toss around the word demon too much you know um i think that a lot of you know unfriendly spirits are just thought to be demons even though they're not i mean let's let's i mean just for a second let's let's go off onto the into the ghost thing for a second and you know if a ghost if an intelligent spirit that haunts a location is the spirit or the personality of someone who was once alive and is now dead and their personalities remain behind. If they were a complete asshole when they were alive, then their personality, you know, is going to be a complete asshole when they're dead. So if you're an unfriendly ghost, people often will just assume you're a demon and everybody tosses around that word way too loosely, I think. And uh, it's kind of like you watch too many TV shows. It's like going on web MD to look for the symptoms of whatever you think you have and assume that you're pretty sure you've got a fatal case of whatever because you looked it up on the internet well this is the same thing except it's tv shows and you just assume if there's something nasty going on or you you know you deem it's nasty it must be a demon and so then the next thing you know then not only is your house infested with demons but hell you are too so I think that's where a lot of the hype comes from but that's not to say there isn't anything going on out there uh because not all these you know not everybody who deals in 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 the demonic is crazy i mean a lot of these priests and i've met a number of them and they're pretty sane and they they are not just going off half cocked thinking everything's you know a possession or an you know needs to be an exorcism i mean father lambert is a He's a really smart guy. He's a very intelligent guy. I just wasn't going to let him practice on me, but he's a good guy, you know, Um, and I think he knows what he's talking about. And the fact that, you know, he's dealing with the things that we're talking about in this documentary. And I think, you know, he's somebody who's worth listening to. But what's the answer? I don't know. Other than we have to, I think, be more careful about what we call a demon and what we don't. I think that's a big part of it.
2: Since we were just talking about ghosts and I am like so scared of ghosts, like I don't want anything to do with a ghost. uh, I want to know, like, what's the scariest thing that you've witnessed ghost hunting?
4: Well, um, most of my ghost hunting for the last 15 years or so is me going to places and putting myself in peril just for the hell of it. I, I mean, I because I'm writing about it more than I'm actually, I, I've kind of given up on all the gadgets and things just because, I don't know, I, I started doing that like 25 years ago, but then like 10 years went by and I realized that I didn't know anything more about ghosts when I started using gadgets than I did. And I still couldn't prove anything with it. So I just sort of gave up on that and just wanted to look for experiences. But so the scariest thing that ever happened to me was, well, and it won't sound that scary, but if you were there, well, it might to you because you're terrified. Go. So, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, anyway, so I went with a buddy of mine. Um, he um, wanted to take me to this place that he had been doing some uh, investigating at. The couple had just recently bought it and they were going to open it to the public. And it wasn't open yet. It was just like 2001, maybe 2002. And uh, it hadn't opened yet, uh, but you know, he told me all about it and it sounded really cool. So I went down to meet him and he took me to this place, which is this massive, massive brick building that used to be a tuberculosis sanatorium, which I'm sure you're going to recognize the name Waverly Hills in Kentucky, in Louisville. And uh, I'd never heard of it at the time because, like I said, it hadn't opened to the public yet. So he he wanted to take me on a personalized tour And so we were just kind of walking through the building. Nothing had been cleaned up. It was still a wreck. Um, They they were getting ready to try to open it. Hadn't done it yet. Anyway, he and I are walking down a hallway on the fourth floor. And as we're walking down the hall, all of a sudden, this guy who just, I mean, looked as real or as solid as you or I, walked out of a doorway on the left-hand side of the hall, just walked across the hall, never looked at us, and went into the door on the opposite side of the hallway. Now, I always tell people when I tell this story, I say right at that exact moment, there was this terrible scream. It was me. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know just, um, I just <laughs> and I grabbed all of my friend and I think, what the fuck was that? <laughs> He's just, just a guy, man. It was just a guy. There's somebody in here. You know, we just assumed that someone had broken in. We both saw him. And I mean, people were breaking in this place all the time. It was like the place to go, you know, spray paint walls and stuff, you know, back in Louisville at the time. So um, he's like, let's just tell them that they got to leave. Well, you know, it'll be, it's fine. So we walk down there, we walk in the door and um, we get ready to tell this guy, buddy, you got to get out of here. And the room is empty and there's no other door to get out of it. And I said, okay, I think I'm done for tonight. So I think we can, I've had my experience, let's go home. So yeah. And I've had other experiences at that place. um, So, and, and other places too. I mean, I, I I've traveled all over, you know, working on books and stuff. And, you know, I always tell people whether you want to be part of your story or not, eventually you're going to be part of the story. <laughs> yeah. uh, just keep going out there and going to these places. Um, I tried to spend the night once in the Bell Witch Cave in the late 90s. Whoa. Wow. There 20 times since then. And it's never been as scary as it was that first time. But and I'd even been there before that, just when it was just open before the owner's that have it now have it and but in 97 I tried to spend the night inside and I made it like three hours and I am not psychic I do not see dead people I am as you know is tuned into the spirit world as a brick I mean I you know but there was just something wrong there there's there's just something wrong at that place and I've always been fascinated with the story and I thought dude you are really pressing your luck on this you should not be spending the night in this cave. And I didn't. I left. Um, So I spent the rest of the night outside the cave, uh, but I did not stay inside. I just couldn't do it. So
2: can you summarize that story just for maybe listeners that haven't heard about?
4: Yeah, the the Bell Witch story is kind of a like the like an original one of the original American ghost stories. Um, It's about immigrants who traveled from North Carolina, bought land in Tennessee, moved on to this farm. John Bell and his wild long assortment of children moved into onto this farm and everything was good for a while but then something started happening at their home knocking sounds banging sounds at first that's all it was when it started but then there was some kind of physical force that was haunting their home began attacking Elizabeth Betsy Bell John's 12-year-old daughter and John Bell who was the patriarch of the family they seemed to get the worst of it i mean it was you know everybody was getting pinched and slapped and and beaten and knocked downstairs and things were moving all over the house and this was going on every single night and eventually it it started to really become more of a a presence in that it began to speak they would hear this voice and it haunted this family for four years and uh, betsy got the worst of it as far as being slapped around and, and beaten and that kind of thing but John Bell began suffering from some kind of ailment where he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't swallow. And eventually, after four years, this presence that they called the witch eventually killed him. And this is the only American story, American ghost story in history, where the ghost involved in the story actually killed one of the main characters. And it claimed credit for killing John Bell, uh, giving him a poison that the family found the next morning, All of his other medicine was gone. This was the only thing left in his medicine cabinet was this black vial. Uh, They tested out the vial on one of the barn cats and it instantly dropped dead. So whatever it was, the the ghost, the witch, as it became known, killed him. Um, But the story has like everything you can imagine. It is like... Everything from a great Hollywood ghost movie is in this story. And, and yet there were hundreds of people who saw things, who, who wrote them down, who gave reports. I mean, it's one of the best documented ghost stories of all time. Even Andrew Jackson went to the house in Tennessee to witness this because John's son had been on his staff at the battle of new Orleans in 1814. So he had gone there to see what was going on because the stories were being told. So even he confirmed the things that were happening at this house. Um, And, but I always say it's this great Hollywood story, but yet somehow Hollywood has never been able to make it correctly. Not once have they done a good job of making this movie, even with Donald Sutherland and Sissy Spacek, the movie still sucks. I don't know what, (laughs) Anyway, um, it it could be a great movie. But anyway, but it's 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 like this classic story. And after the witch departed, you know, it's always been said that that part of her energy has stayed behind on the farm. And there is a cave on the farm um, located right below this uh, Native American burial ground on the property. And, you know, you can tie all that together any way you like, I guess. But the cave itself is. I believe one of the most haunted places in the country and the stuff that happens there is not, it's not even a lot of, it's not even what you would consider to be like ghostly, like, you know, yes, people get slapped. Sometimes their hair gets pulled, they see things, but a lot of it's just so bizarre that you can't even wrap your head around it. Like weird photographs are taken there that make no sense. There's a photograph that was taken uh, on a rock outside the mouth of the cave and it was taken on like a like a Boy Scout trip or something. And there is a girl sitting on the rock and they thought it was just a picture, took the picture, got it, developed. This was still the 90s. You still develop film, got the picture, developed and it had the girl sitting there. But behind her was a boy in what looked like overalls who was upside down in the air I know
2: crawling
4: up her leg was a (sighs) two-headed snake. I'm I'm dead serious here. They have them all on display down there. This is like this like weird anomaly spot, and there are all kinds of photos like that of like people appearing in the photos that shouldn't be there. There There's one photo of a kid that was there. It was a class trip, and these kids had all lined up to have their pictures taken. And the kids around the front got their arms around each other's neck. It's like a sixth grade trip. Well, the teacher takes the picture, goes back, uh, you know, at the end of the field trip, and then contacts the owners of the cave and sends them a copy of the photo. One of the kids in the picture disappeared out of the picture. There's a kid sitting, they've got their arms around him, and there's no one there. What? But he was there when they took the picture. I mean, wow. This- crazy. It's like a mystery spot. It's like one of those places, you know, where like cars roll uphill, even though they don't, but this weird stuff happens here. And they say that if you take anything from the cave, and I know this is a story that you hear about lots of locations, but they say, if you take anything from the cave, that the, the energy from the cave will follow you. And Chris, Chris Kirby who owns it, she has told me, she's gotten dozens and dozens of packages from people mailed back to her that contain like rocks and things that people have taken from the caves who've had auto accidents, um, who've had fires in their home. Uh, I know a, I know a woman who had a rock from the cave, um, or somebody had it and gave it to her because they'd been having all kinds of bad luck and she didn't believe it. She died like two months later. I'm not, no joke. And the best one is a really good friend of mine, uh, was going to the cave. And I told her, I said, listen, whatever you do, just don't take anything from the cave. I know you. that sounds superstitious and I'm not usually like that, but just trust me, don't do it. She was going down the Nashville area to visit friends and she stopped at the cave on the way. So the next day I get a call from her and she said, um, well, I have a small problem. Apparently, they had, after she'd gone to the cave, she got to her friend's home and they went out that evening. They were out to eat in Nashville, they're outside on a sidewalk cafe kind of deal. And she said that something bit her or something, but while she was there, one whole side of her face completely swelled up to the point she was unrecognizable. She sent me a picture and I wouldn't even have known it was her. And I said, You took a rock, didn't you? And she said, Yeah, I did.
2: Oh my gosh.
4: Oh to do it. And so the next day she mailed the rock back to the Kirby's at the cave and um, the swelling went down. It was never treated. There wasn't she didn't even know how to treat it. And uh, the swelling just disappeared.
2: Wow, but, why are there sixth graders going for a field trip here? Like that's what <laughs> blows my mind. Well, it's one of those
4: local history things, you know, yeah. around the Clarksville, Tennessee area. So all the schools go there. Soldiers from Fort Campbell, Kentucky go down there. And a lot of those guys have had stories about, you know, I don't believe in any of this stuff. And then they get down there. And there was one time um, there were a group of guys, the soldiers came from the fort, and they went down on a tour of the cave and they just kept saying, Oh, come on, you know, that's I don't believe in any of this stuff. And the owner at the time, Bill Eden, said, Well, you know, here's the thing: you know, if anything happens. I'll bet you won't ever come back here. And he just sort of laughed. He was just kind of real easy going, at a good old boy type, you know. And so these soldiers went through the cave and they're on their way out. And all of a sudden, this soldier who had been talking to Bill most of the time just sat down on the floor in the middle of the cave. And he said, man, what are you doing? He goes, I can't get up. I can't get up. And his buddies were trying to pull him. These are big. These are guys from the 101st Airborne, right? Uh, Who are stationed at Fort Campbell. And they're trying to pull their buddy up off the floor of the cave and they can't lift him. Like five guys can't pick this kid up. He's just sitting there and he is unable to move. And he's he's starting to sweat and sweat's pouring down his face and he can't breathe. He's like, something feels like it's crushing my chest. And this went on for like five minutes. And then finally, he was able to get up. And he said to Bill, he said, uh, "Well, you're right about one thing. I won't ever be back here again." <laughs> wow. wow! This is a bizarre place, wow. man. It really is. And you tie it into a story that dates back, well, more than 200 years. And man, it's a it's a really cool spot. I I really honestly, it's it's I'd say it's number one on my list. I mean, Gettysburg, the battlefield of Gettysburg, is is super haunted, but it's just not like. You know, it would be my number two, I guess, because I'd put the Bellwitch Cave as number one. Wow. I mean, it's a crazy place.
1: As far as modern day or things that have happened at haunted locations in our lifetime it's wild that one of the people in the documentary, Stephen Lachance has that yes. remarkable book, the the union street screaming house in oh, his yeah, time, yeah, like yeah. fleeing yeah. that house with his no. children and everything like that. Yeah. Is there, is there any stories along those lines, any recent stories that have happened in our lifetime that are particularly compelling to you? Maybe one you could think of recent one. Uh,
4: gosh, recent stuff, you know, um, I don't, here's the thing. I don't deal a lot in the really recent stuff. Everything I do, I dig into history because that's that was my gateway drug to all this was history. Mm. And so mm-hmm. that's how I got involved in it. But there are so many places that, yeah, like the Bell Witch Cave are still going on. And I think that's what makes them cool. But there is a story. I And I was just talking about it recently. But I don't think, well, allegedly the house isn't haunted like it was, at least demonically. Uh, but there was a house in in Pittsburgh on Brownsville Road. Uh, Bob Cramner, Bob and Lloyd Cramner lived there. And uh, he wrote a book about it, but they moved in there in the 80s and always felt like there was a weird presence. And, you know, they had just crazy stuff go on in that house. I mean, all kinds of and and they believed that it was and so did the, the Archdiocese of Pittsburgh. They sent exorcists out to the house to try to bless this place because they were having all kinds of, you know, banging sounds and weird noises. And then they were seeing a presence in the house like this black shape. They were seen and all the, the religious objects they had in the house, crosses, rosaries, all these things were being destroyed. And they really started getting worried about this. And when the exorcisms began, things were so bad. They went on for like two years and things became so bad that Lori Cranmer and like at least two of the kids ended up being hospitalized in a mental hospital because things became so intense and during the exorcism according to his story during the exorcism there was one time when they found what looked like a brownish red almost like blood was all over the walls of one of the room like someone had just stood back and just spattered the walls but it was not on the ceiling or on the floor not a drop just on the walls and they couldn't explain that but it went on for a long time and eventually uh, one of his kids died His mother-in-law, who was living with them, died in the house during the exorcisms. They, you know, as I said, some of them were treated in a mental hospital and eventually they ended up divorced after like 37 years of marriage. And I'm going to say it was because of this house. Uh, But he has eventually turned it into a bed and breakfast. Which seems scary.
2: To wow. Me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I like to go
4: to haunted places, but I don't know about that one. Um, you know, but uh, that seems a little too recent to me and a little too scary. Um, you're not talking about ghosts there. You're talking about something much worse. And uh, so but I you know, the exorcism was supposed to have worked. So we just have to assume that the house is no longer infested but eh, i don't know i'm gonna pass yeah (laughs) i'm gonna take a chance but for the really daring i look it up it's he did a book it's called like the demon of brownsville road i think uh but that's that's a pretty recent one so it's definitely worth looking into
1: very very fascinating leo we're gonna close it out with a couple questions for you just about the documentary
3: yeah of course i was thinking about the pittsburgh case a second ago i was thinking well if you take adam bly with you you're in good hands (laughs) <laughs> that, that's that's his turf out there man
4: <laughs>
3: going back to the uh, roland doe case here uh, yeah. i was thinking about father bishop's 26 page diary that was found yes. in roland's room at the alexian brothers hospital it's been said that only like 16 pages or less were preserved were you able to read the 26 page entry and is there any mention or of details to a possible cover-up tied to the roland doe case that is briefly hinted in the documentary
4: uh, yeah, I have seen the the entire diary. Um, the uh, The one that was in uh, that was locked in the room was a copy of the diary that was given to Brother Cornelius, who was the head of the Alexian Hospital at the time. Uh, there were only a handful of copies made, and he felt that. He didn't need it in his files. He wanted to preserve it with the room and the entire room was what really was sealed up. I know that sounds like an urban legend, but it really is true. He did leave all the furniture in there. He, closed up his copy of the diary in the desk. And then eventually it, it did get out because there were workmen who came in when they tore down that wing in the hospital. They're the ones who found that. And they didn't have any of the same you know, rules that the church did about that getting out. So, yes, the 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 full co- the full diary is available. You can read it. I've read the whole thing. I had never run across the, the cover up story about the other priests that the first time I heard about it was in this documentary. So that was new to me. I, I hadn't heard it before. So I, uh, I don't know where, where the information came from exactly, uh, but I know that Stephen was talking about it. And, but that's the first time I would heard it. So that's not one I can really answer. It's, it's not mentioned in the diary. No.
3: In your book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, there's an interesting note about the furniture in Roland Doe's room from that exorcism it's been since stored in some facilities in illinois and uh have any of the furniture pieces made it out in the wild
4: no they haven't and you know i I always like to say that that the story about the the furniture being moved to the storage facility is um i can't prove it's true that a guy told me that story but i always say that while i can't prove it's true it should be true um, and it should be really stored right next to the Ark of the Covenant. That's how I always picture this when I, you know, with the story. But it's a cool story. Um, you know, there there yeah. are various versions of what happened to the furniture. Some people say they just went to a nursing home or stored in the attic, and then it, all of it was lost track of when the nursing home closed down because there was a lot of other furniture left behind. But the specific furniture from the room that Roland was in, the story goes that it was taken to a rectory in St. Louis and it was stored in the basement and a guy came to me and told me this story said that he worked for a moving company and that he was taken to this rectory they were getting ready to close the rectory and he was taken to the rectory and he was told to move the furniture and he was taken down to the basement by one of the priests who would not go into the room he told them they needed to take the furniture out uh crate it up And take it to this address, which was a storage unit, which is directly located across from Scott Air Force Base outside Belleville, Illinois. And there really is a there really is a storage unit there. So that I mean, that is for real. Uh, But the guy told me that that they created it up and they took it there and that the priest told him that it was the furniture from the room uh, where the exorcism had taken place. Now, like I said, I don't I don't know that it's true, but it's such a good story that I always tell it, but I always with the caveat that if it's not true, it should be, but I don't know. Uh, but I do love the story. You can't, you can't go wrong with that story. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> have did you, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to the house where it all began?
4: Sure. Yeah. The house in Bel where Roland's aunt and uncle lived is in a very quiet, nice neighborhood on Roanoke drive. It's a nice house. Um, I've been there Couple of different owners. Um, I've been there inside the house. The first time I tried to go was in 2005. And that was when, that was honestly at the time, I mean, I had the address, but it was not open. I mean, the public, it wasn't a public thing that everybody knew that was the Exorcist house. Um, That actually showed up in the newspaper because the guy who bought the house mysteriously vanished. Now, I don't think it had anything to do with the exorcism, but the guy just disappeared. And nobody ever knew what happened to him. They came and had to foreclose on the house because no payments were made or anything. The guy was just gone and left his stuff behind. And then the the story, when that story was told, it got somebody's attention and they must've gone back and looked up something about the history of the house. And that, because that's when the newspaper finally printed, this was the house where the exorcism started. Um, so I was living in the area at the time And so I I wanted to see the inside of the house. I'd seen the outside, but it'd never been in. So I made an appointment with the realtor to look at the house with just, you know, as like I was going to buy it. Yeah, yeah. I had an appointment, and in the morning of my appointment, I got a call from the realtor, and he said, um, "Yeah, I found out who you are, and uh, I, I'm not going to show you this house." Oh But, anyway, oh, no. but a couple <laughs> of years later, a couple of years later, I did get the chance to, and I actually spent the night at the house uh, with a radio crew. Yeah, they um, there was there's a radio show guy I know is a radio show in St. Louis, and he um, every Halloween they take you know a certain number of their listeners around to. A different haunted place and it's a contest where you have to stay by yourself in one of the rooms or one of the places and it goes to all different places but uh this year he gotten uh was able to take people to the exorcist house so of course he asked me if i wanted to go and of course i did you know so i got to go to the house i got to see the house and hang out there and then my, my only job with the radio show was to when the uh, contestants got there, scare them as much as possible. Right. By telling them everything that had happened in the house, there were three people, they brought them there blindfolded in like a panel van, you know, they couldn't see out of and brought them into the house. And then I had to tell them where they were. And as soon as I did, one of them quit immediately. She didn't want any part of it. She wasn't going to stay because what they had to do was spend an hour upstairs In the room that Roland had shared with his cousin where exorcism went on every single night before they finally moved him because it had been become so violent and so disruptive. So they had to spend an hour in there and the first guy stayed about 10 minutes. And that was it because, I mean, there was no one in the house. We were all outside. There's a detached garage. Oh, my God. Listening to everything that was going on, but there was no one in the house. They just run cables outside. So we were all kind of sitting out there listening because, you know, it's radio. So they expected them to talk, you know, and to do something. And the guy kept saying, there's somebody outside the door. There's somebody outside the door. I keep hearing footsteps outside the door. It's like, dude, there's no one in the house, right? It's like, well, I can see a shadow underneath the door. There's no one in the house. So he gets up, he opens the door. There's nobody there that freaks him out enough. He only stays about 10 minutes and he quits. Okay. So the last girl, she, this, this girl, who's um, the final one in the contest, she goes into the room and she doesn't even make it as long as he does. She sits down in there. And the same thing starts to happen. She keeps hearing something moving around and hearing something sliding. And she's swearing that she's seeing something underneath the door. You know, the lights on in the hallway and she can see a shadow there. There's there really was no one in the house. I mean, I swear to you. And so she keeps saying that she's seeing and she's hearing something. And um, and so she starts like reciting the Lord's prayer over the radio. Right. And all of a the sudden there's like this. The best way I can describe it is like this sliding sound and a thump. And she starts screaming. And I'm telling you, man, this was like blood curdling screams. You could it's one o'clock in the morning. You could hear it all over the neighborhood and begging someone to come get her. So the crew runs back into the house to get her out. And this was like three minutes is all the time she made it. And uh, so that's how it ended. That's the only time that no one's ever won the contest. I mean, that <laughs> no one had ever stayed. I mean, because he, he continues to do it. But this is the only time that no one would stay the entire time. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to say the house is haunted, but I'm going to say whatever happened there has definitely left an impression behind for sure. Um, and there's an atmosphere about that house. Well, not the whole house, but there really is an atmosphere about that bedroom. Even I thought so. And I'm again, not psychic or anything sensitive at all, but even I thought it felt weird in that bedroom, like something had just been left there. So, but yeah, it's, um, I filmed there. Uh, I filmed there again a few years ago with the documentary and we couldn't do it on this one. We couldn't travel anywhere because we filmed this in 2020 the year of the plague. So we, you know, did it all remotely, but I'm I'm thinking one of these days, I'm sure I'll probably be there again. It's an interesting place to visit. I mean, it's, it's history. I mean, you're walking into the only surviving location from this exorcism, except for the house in cottage city, Maryland. It's still there. I have not been inside that house. I've been there, uh, but I haven't been inside the family who lived there. The last time I was out there doing some filming uh, did not know the history of the house until we informed them and um i i think they were probably ready to move yeah right. <laughs> they were not happy, uh, but they declined to be <laughs> part of the filming so yeah that did not did not work out but so really those are the only two places left in the entire country because the rectory that Roland was moved to after the house in Belmore has been torn down and replaced in the Alexian brothers hospitals that the old wing, it's all gone. The old hospital's gone. It was replaced by a new one. That's how we have the diary is because it was being torn down. But um, yeah, that's the only place left where the exorcism was really taking place. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a cool location. So um, yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow, Troy, man. I got to say, thank you so You're much up. for taking the time to spend with us. Yes. That was yeah. thrilling to listen to, man. Oh, yeah. Seriously. One of my yeah. favorite episodes we've ever recorded, Thanks. bar yes. none, man. That was amazing.
2: Yeah, awesome. I can't wait for you to come back. Like, this yeah. could go yeah, on for, like, know. two hours. <laughs> yeah, we could just
4: keep doing it. We could do something else. Yeah, just let me know. I'll come back. Te- Dude, tea time it.
2: with Troy. Yeah, like, tea time no. with Troy. We love yeah. it. We love it.
3: <laughs> that was the Booth Crew Podcast episode 198 special thanks to our guest Troy Taylor follow Troy at Troy Taylor Graham
1: on Insta at Troy Taylor 13 on Twitter and see Shock Docs the exorcism of Roland Doe a time of release available now exclusively on Discovery Plus
2: production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000 till next time it's the boo crew saying sweet screams
0: thanks for listening to another episode of the boo crew podcast haunt the boo crew and tales from the boo crew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at tales from the boo the boo crew is lauren and trevor shand and leone d'antonio the boo crew is produced by lauren shand chopped and sliced by trevor shand the boo crew is a tsp creation part of the bloody disgusting podcast network bye